some celestial event. No. No words. No words. To describe poetry. They should have said the poet. So beautiful. No idea. Hello, Earthlings, again, <laughs> and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that knows the difference between us and other podcasts is we make this look good. Boo. Again, audio podcast, not video. <laughs> We make it sound good. We do have great sounds. Honestly, we've got fantastic acoustics. I'm Becky, the podcast host who is most likely to shoot an eight-year-old girl holding advanced science textbooks in the middle of the ghetto at night because she's definitely up to something. I'm Chris, the podcast host who we lovingly call Elmer. <laughs> and I'm Seth, the host most likely to be a 9.0 on your weird shit-o-meter. <laughs> Welcome to part two of When We Were Young presents the early, late, mid to late 90s summer alien invasion spectacular. For the record, I did not sign off on that name. Everyone else did, though. You didn't have to. <laughs> In our previous episode, we discussed the alien movies of 1996, Independence Day, and Mars Attacks. And today we'll be jumping ahead one year to greet hello to the slimy cartoonish bugs of Men in Black and the philosophical and possibly fake space beings of Robert Zemeckis' Contact. Men in Black and Contact were released one week apart from each other in 1997. In theaters that same week were Face Off, Disney's Hercules, My Best Friend's Wedding, Batman and Robin... The Lost World, Jurassic Park, and Speed 2 Cruise Control. Fucking take me back to that <laughs> box office. Except for, uh, what was the bad one? Speed 2 Cruise what Control. What was the bad one? <laughs> I love Speed 2 Cruise Control. <laughs> what was the bad one? So Speed 2 Cruise Control was not the bad one, is what you're saying. Batman and Robin? Yes, that's the bad one. <laughs> um, I would love to watch Batman and Robin. But it actually is really fun. So. It's fun as fuck. Yeah, we've covered an alarming amount of these movies on we the really podcast have. so far. <laughs> this is like the week of when we were young. It's insane to think that things were all literally in the theaters at the same time. What were you most likely to be seeing this week out of all of these movies? I mean, The Lost World. Like, I was yeah. never not going to go see the sequel to the Jurassic Lost World. Park. Because I love Jurassic the Lost Park. World. Yeah. yeah, it would have to be that. So before we get into our alien movie discussions, I have a very simple question for you guys. Do you believe in aliens? And I hope you do. 
This is a mighty big question, Becky. That was literally someone who like got into like learning about politics through being a sci-fi nerd and an X-Files nerd and like wanting to learn about the reality, such as it is, of UFOs and the UFO phenomenon and like the way that the government covers it up or what it's covering up. And I've learned that a lot of the folklore and the pop culture and the way that we kind of view aliens and conceptualize of aliens as a threat, that a lot of that comes from kind of straight up military propaganda and especially like Cold War era propaganda and things that the U.S. government did during the Cold War to wage war worldwide and unaccountably without the permission of the American people. None of this is answering the question, but it's what started for me as just a pure, total, uncomplicated belief in aliens and in their existence and a very deep abiding hope that I would have some kind of encounter. With a xenomorph? <laughs> an encounter specifically never with a xenomorph. More an encounter, you know, with like the, the more benign seeming gray aliens who were smart and weren't there to probe your ass or anything untoward. Yes, I do believe that there is a such thing as other intelligent species in the universe. I also, though, believe that most of the ways that Americans conceptualize of whether or not aliens exist at all, that basically all of that takes place within this kind of, like, storytelling that America does to, like, its own political ends. So I don't know if there are, like, humanoid-type aliens out in the universe, and whatever form life takes doesn't have to bear any resemblance to the way that it exists here and doesn't have to really obey any of the kind of human defined ways of interpreting and analyzing the world. But yeah, ultimately, I want to believe. (laughs) There we (laughs) go. (laughs) And I still do believe. But yeah, it's been a complicated journey to get back to actually saying that. Because the more I learned about how, like, you know, Area 51 was literally just a fucking military base where America was testing weapon systems for, like, 50 years on end, was the kind of thing that really made me want to not believe that. And it has made a lot of people who did buy into the UFO phenomenon a lot totally disbelieve that anything like alien life could exist. Do you believe, like, in any, like, UFO stories, like, sightings on Earth might have actually been real aliens or whatever? Absolutely. I do. And I'm sure that some of them were. But I also think that most of the kind of sightings of UFOs, especially in America, and that become, like, part of the cultural conversation, weren't really anything alien. It's interesting because, like, when we talk about contact, there's a lot of questions that come up about both faith in God and, obviously, belief in aliens. And I see those things as very similar in that, like, I don't know, like, how would I possibly know? I have no experience seeing an alien. I have no experience with God coming to me, like, speaking through a burning bush or, you know, communicating directly with me. And, like, my approach to this is just, like, I don't know. I could never know and I don't think other people really could ever know. I find righteousness about religion to be a little bit ridiculous because it just seems very arrogant to me that people would think that they fully comprehend like the will of God or that like a super advanced species of alien like that they have you know somehow cracked the code. Like, it's just, to me, it's like, if it's out there, it's out there, and we probably would never understand it, even if we did see it. And I don't think we have, because, like, to me, it feels 
like unlikely that they would be in like flying saucers like the the sort of legends have it like or that they would look humanoid like you mm-hmm. know supposedly they do I think it would probably be some like mind blowing different form of life that we couldn't even conceive of. And I feel the same way about religion too. Is like if there's a God, it's not that he is in the image of us and that he like literally did all the things that like the Bible would say. And like, you know, there's all these religions that contradict each other. And I just don't think that like anyone could possibly have gotten it right without like we really don't have a lot of evidence for any of this. Like everything is kind of shrouded in secrecy and hearsay and so to me, they're both like myths that like are maybe rooted in something that could potentially be true. I just, there's no way I could possibly know. I don't think I ever will know. And I don't claim that I should or could know. It's like, I don't know. And like, that's, that's the best I can do is to just say like, this is beyond me to even like really have an opinion on. The word for that is not no, it's agnosticism. Yeah. You don't have any certainty of the lack of it. Yeah. You know, and and yeah, I mean, personally, I consider myself like an agnostic as far as like the spirituality portion of things, but I do consider myself a spiritual person. So, in a sense, I kind of feel like I'm on a similar wavelength to you in that sense. And yeah, I also like, I think sometimes saying things like that leads to the assumption that I don't believe in anything. And it's like, not really, because I I mean, I think the likelihood that something is out there in the universe is as likely as the fact that something isn't, because as like they say in contact, it is a large ass universe <laughs> i don't think that's the exact quote oh my god <laughs> becky look at the universe's butt <laughs> that so universe has big. let herself go <laughs> i like big universes okay and i cannot <laughs> lie <laughs> no but it, we still don't even understand how big the universe is and or anything really about like what's beyond our solar system we really don't understand that much about like what's going on out there so like it seems as likely as there would be something as there would be nothing it's just like i don't know like that's that's <laughs> the best answer i got i'm pretty much with you completely thanks <laughs> like i would start my answer with nope <laughs> But the truth is, I I can't know because the universe is so big. Yeah, I'm sure there's some sort of life, quote unquote, if you want to call it life. But it might just even be bacteria or it might be something we can't even see. Or maybe we're all in a cat's collar (laughs) and someone is playing marbles with us. We don't know. That's pretty much been my ongoing theory for a while now. We don't know. We don't know. (laughs) I know we're like veering toward a Joe Rogan position here. (laughs) Who's like, is the moon actually made of cheese? Who's to say? I haven't been there. I used to date somebody who very much believed in ghosts and aliens. And he actually like did ghost hunting trips and he went to ufologist meetings, and that's why I know what that word is. Uh, it's a person who studies UFOs, is a ufologist. And there was a meeting in the valley, and I went with him once to be a good girlfriend, I guess? It would be in the valley. It would be in the valley. And the whole time, I was just, like, <laughs> so trying to be a nice girlfriend, but I was internally being like, these people are idiots, or, like, misguided, or delusional, or... And this is a part of my relationship with him, where I was just like... It was one of those, like, really? <laughs> like, so really? for the next ten minutes on the show, we're gonna act out a scene of what happened at that meeting. No, we're not. <laughs> I'll play that. the role of the boyfriend. No. Was it Mike? <laughs> no, it was not my current husband. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. (laughs) I would love a bit of insight as to the kind of things that they talked about at the ufology meetings and like MUFON, which is like the Mutual UFO Network. Yep, that was it. 
There's that literally, MUFON? MUFON. That's literally... There are chapters yeah. all over the world. It sounds comfortable. It, right? It sounds like a futon. Like, I want to take a nap on I, it. I literally did not remember that word until you just said it. But yeah. that's literally a thing I grew up reading about. And, of course, they had it all over X-Files episodes. But I never went to any of those myself. Clearly, these were people that believed oh, yeah. that aliens in some form have visited Earth mm-hmm. in some way, whether that's like flying by or or actually like, you know, stepped foot on Earth. Oh, yeah. Flaming and, cattle. <laughs> and I would absolutely easily say, without any kind of judgment built into it, that people who are part of groups like that and move on, like, that's a faith-based community. And I thought I was dumb. <laughs> like, and I think stuff like that is kind of insane because the universe is so expansive and big. How could anything reach us to, for, for us to get photographic proof? Maybe if we sent a camera way, 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 way out there... Maybe we see something or maybe we'd go to Mars and see some sort of water droplets or bacteria that meant at some point there was some sort of life there at some point. But like, I just also just don't see the point. It's not something that ever affects my daily life. And I have other problems (laughs) to deal with currently. So it seems like something that... (laughs) I just picture Becky and Independence Day, like the big ships come. I have other problems. (laughs) Do not add to my day. <laughs> I've got to get to the strip club. <laughs> Becky, no one's calling you into a laboratory to figure all this out. <laughs> like, <laughs> but just like the whole idea of even wondering about it. I'm just like, who gives a shit? <laughs> like, like I'm 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 fine with like interplanetary discovery, you know, astronomy and going out there and but like the people that are like, yes, there's aliens. I'm like, what the aliens are not affecting you if they're there or not there. Well, and I think we'll touch on a lot of these same things when you talk about contact. Um, but especially just in the context of like MUFON and like groups like that, it's obvious that a lot of times those things exist because people need community. And they seek and they find and they make community in every possible way that exists, you know, along any kind of interest, no matter how completely silly or not. Yeah, it was the nerdiest thing I've ever (laughs) taken part of. I'm not saying something. (laughs) Let's talk about Men in Black. (laughs) May I ask why you felt little Tiffany deserved to die? Well, she was the only one that actually seemed dangerous at the time, sir. How'd you come to that conclusion? Well, first I was going to pop this guy hanging from the street light, and then I realized, you know, he's just working out. And how would I feel if somebody come running in the gym, bust me in my ass while I'm on a treadmill? Then I saw this uh, snarling beast guy, and I noticed he had a tissue in his hand. I realized, you know, he's not snarling. He's sneezing. You know, ain't no real threat there. Then I saw a little Tiffany. I'm thinking, you know, eight-year-old white girl, middle of the ghetto, bunch of monsters, this time of night with quantum physics books. She about to start some shit, Zed. She's about eight years old. Those books are way too advanced for her. If you ask me, I'd say she's up to something. And to be honest, I'd appreciate it if you eased up off my back about it. Men in Black was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. It was written by Ed Solomon. It's based on the 1990 comic book series by Lowell Cunningham. And uh, Men in Black stars Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones, Rip Torn, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Linda Fiorentino. It was released on July 2nd, 1997. It had a budget of $90 million and a box office of $590 million. It was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Original Score and Best Art Direction, and it won Best Makeup. Hmm. Okay. I believe that was Rick Baker. It was. You're right. 
In fact, legendary makeup effects artist Rick Baker described Men in Black as the most complex production of his career. He said it required more sketches than all of his previous movies put together, and he would often have to deal with approval from both Sonnenfeld and Spielberg, who was an executive producer. A quote from Rick Baker says, It was like, Stephen likes the head on this alien, and Barry likes the body on this one, so why don't you do a mix and match of both? And I'd say, because it wouldn't make any sense. (laughs) So he uh, was dealing with a lot of different you know, studio notes. Sounds like a Sarah Jessica Parker Chihuahua situation. (laughs) (laughs) The film spawned two sequels, Men in Black 2 in 2002 and Men in Black 3 in 2012. There was a spinoff film called Men in Black International in 2019 and a 1997 animated series that I watched a few minutes of. And it looked real bad. (laughs) I remember it existed. I never watched it. It was very strange. I watched a couple minutes and it was like, you know how like Ninja Turtles cartoon is like clearly for like little kids. This was much more like quiet. Wasn't it like gritty anime style kind of? A little bit. Yeah. 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 I kind of remember the visual style of it, but that was it. And maybe that's influenced more by the comic book. Maybe. Maybe. Um, Much of the initial script drafts were set underground with locations ranging from Kansas to D.C. to Nevada. Sonnenfeld decided to change the location to New York City because the director felt that New Yorkers would be tolerant of aliens who behaved oddly, which I can't argue with. I love that. (laughs) Reviews were mostly positive. Janet Maslin for the New York Times wrote that it's actually a shade more deadpan and peculiar than such across-the-board marketing makes it sound. It's also extraordinarily ambitious with all-star design and special effects talent and a genuinely artful visual style. Meanwhile, Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly gave the film a C+. He wrote, Men in Black celebrates the triumph of attitude over everything else. Plausibility, passion, any sense that what we're watching actually matters. Did you guys see Men in Black in the theaters when you were young? I sure did. Um, I saw all these movies in the theaters (laughs) because I saw all the movies in the theaters. (laughs) I remember seeing this, uh, like most of these movies except for Mars Attacks. I bought it on VHS, so most of my memories are actually around watching it at home. This was my sister's movie, actually. She had more of a, like, Will Smith fandom than I did, so it was kind of like, if I was going to put something on, I would put on, like, Independence Day or something else, and if she was, like, choosing the movie, she would put on this, or, you know, we had some movies that we both liked equally, but, like, this was a her movie. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been a big, like, action comedy fan, like, to me, those things don't go together that well, like, as well as a comedy comedy or an action action, so. Pizza, pizza. So it's just like, it was never going to be like my favorite movie, but I, you know, like it was very watchable growing up, but I had not seen it since I was in high school. The song, however, which I know, you know, we'll obviously get to, became unlistenable (laughs) at a certain point because it was a a big hit. Team Wild Wild West, if we're going to go there. Oh, do we have to go there? (laughs) You must pick a Will Smith (laughs) theme song. (laughs) No. Miami doesn't count. The movie, no, but the the song, like, if we're picking a Will Smith song, I'm going to go Wild Wild West. 
Men in Black was yet another movie that I saw multiple times in theaters. And unlike Mars Attacks, this was a, a hit with friends and family. I'm pretty sure I saw it at least once with some friends of mine. I know I saw it with my parents at least once. Maybe we like went to go back and see it a second time in the theater. You're a real repeat offender of films. That's surprising to me for some reason. Um, it, well, we didn't do it a lot. It just so happens that a lot of these movies we're talking about are the ones that were like enough to pull me back in and get them back in. But yeah, I remember my dad especially who's like, it's not like he's a tough sell on movies, but it's like he's one of those people who will randomly very deeply hate movies that like everyone else loves. So it's hard to read like where he'll go, but he like lost his shit watching this movie um and is that a good thing or a bad it's thing? a good kind of lost okay. shit um and 12 year old me like lost my mind watching this movie because like unlike mars attacks like this is very intentionally a comedy that has jokes and physical comedy and all of that stuff i thought it rocked when it first came out and i saw it a bunch of times i saw it i rented i know i rented it like on video probably on dvd later on when blockbuster was doing dvd rentals um, I don't think I owned it in any other formats, and I haven't seen it. I hadn't seen it for at least a decade before rewatching it for this. I definitely saw this movie in the theaters. I remember liking it. Don't really have that much more like emotional mm-hmm. story with Men in Black. Yeah, I just remember. I remember enjoying it. Here comes the Men in Black. Oh, in regards to the theme song, I remember that that was where I discovered that sampling was a thing. Yeah. Because I remember hearing the song that it's based off of, which is, Send me, get me nuts. I don't know this song. Really? The Men in Black theme song samples Forget Me Nots by R&B artist Patrice Russian. It's a 1982 song. And I remember that was it was playing like in some store or something. And I was like, this is the Men in Black song. And I did not know that sampling was, especially in like hip hop, R&B, rap, that it was a thing. I mean, it's a thing in all genres. I didn't realize that that is a thing that is in music. To, like, 13-year-old me, I was like, that's just stealing. <laughs> they just took the song. It's, it's, they didn't create the melody? Like, they didn't create it? Then I realized Will Smith is always doing this. Mm-hmm. But he's not the only one. It's just that he was the first artist, I realized, that most of his big hits are, like, from other songs. Like, someone else had written and released the melody under a different song, and he took it. One of the first ones that I recognized was, I think around this time, was Puff Daddy's I'll Be Missing You. Mm-hmm. And that's taken from Every Breath You Take by the Police. Yep. Mariah Carey's Fantasy is another song. Yeah. It happens all the time. It's oh, just yeah. like him and Mariah Carey, I think, were like the first artists where I was like, wait, what? Like, to me, it felt like cheating. <laughs> I totally understand it. I, I feel like I had a similar conviction around that time. I was still kind of a classical musical purist at the stage. And I don't know if it was Men in Black or like that Puff Daddy song, I think was one of them. The song that Puff Daddy did for Godzilla, which was taken from Led Zeppelin's Cashmere, it was literally just that Led Zeppelin song with him rapping over it. Yeah. Come with me. Oh my God, I know it. How do I know it? You know it. You will never forget it. I don't like Puff Daddy at all. 
Except when he was on It's Always Sunny yeah. in Philadelphia. And 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 Puff Daddy always did that with his songs. Yeah. Whenever I hear Men in Black, I just think, Sammy, forget me nots. <laughs> just start singing that one instead. Forget me nots. The Galaxy Defender. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys think about Men in Black now? Oh no, gonna be shocked. You guys, I still really fucking enjoyed this movie, like, a whole lot. I was completely charmed by it, I can't lie. It was made at a point where the artisans who crafted the CG did a good enough job with what they had that that part of the effects absolutely worked. But also, it's like, the power of Rick Baker cannot be understated. I thought the makeup effects in this were amazing. But yeah, this movie was kind of full of the sardonic, actual funny one-liners that I kind of had expected that Independence Day would have had and didn't have at all. I thought it gave Will Smith a lot more to work with. Like, I would agree with you that in the fullness of history, Will Smith just leans right into his Will Smithness. And I don't think he's really my favorite part of this movie, but I think there's so many other strong elements in this movie that it doesn't all have to rest on his shoulders entirely. I, again, love Danny Elfman, who did the score, and Barry Sonnenfeld, the director, so much, as I expressed in our episodes about Adam's Family. And I feel like Barry Sonnenfeld brought a whole lot of his comedy sensibility into this, where there's a lot of really great physical comedy and great action sequencing. So yeah, I had a blast watching this movie. What do you think I thought of this movie? (laughs) (laughs) I bet you liked Linda Fiorentino and that's it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I think you thought it was fine. I... (laughs) liked this movie. Yay! <laughs> if you had asked me before like we recorded and like had rewatched all these movies, I would have probably thought that I would like this one the least because I was never a huge fan of it. I never like disliked it, but it was always it was just never my thing. Like I said in Mars Attacks, like I thought that that would probably like appeal to me more as like a spoof now that I would have like understood more what the the joke was supposed to be if it had jokes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was really surprised. Like, I kept waiting for this one to kind of, like, fall off and, like, lose me. <laughs> but it was fun. Like, it's the ultimate, like, popcorn movie where I don't really care at all what's happening. It's clever enough and engaging enough. And every scene and, like, moment is, like, works enough to, like, keep it going. And it's, like, afterwards, I basically forget all about it. That's not my kind of movie. I like to take away an emotion or, you know, some kind of idea. This is not that movie. But, like... To that degree, I had, like, a much better time watching it again than I ever would have expected. And yeah, like, I would say, like, it's a very episodic movie in every single way. Like, this is not a character drama. (laughs) But, you know, it had so many great people involved, especially in terms of writing and in terms of directing, that it's like, all those episodes are good. (laughs) Yes, it's a roller coaster ride and not a more seriously prestige piece, but it's a good roller coaster ride, I think. And it keeps surprising you in like little ways. It's not like anything that happens is like surprising overall, totally. but like little scenes have like fun little surprises and unexpected moments that it wasn't like one of those movies where you're just like, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. Like every scene, even for someone who's seen it like several times before, was inventive, like mm-hmm. constantly. Becky? I thought this movie was cute. <laughs> cute? <laughs> She rates it one cute. I liked watching it. I didn't love it. I liked it. I loved some parts of it and some parts were... mm. (laughs) I felt like it had a similar sensibility to Ghostbusters and movies like that. I love that that comparison. I Um, didn't even think of that. There is a practical effects kookiness 
um, yeah. and charm, where so much of the charm is in puppetry and in character design, in performance, that that I felt like held up the best. Mm-hmm. Not so much the story, not so much Will Smith and what are the, is it J and K? Is that their names? Like, mm-hmm. not so much their th- thing but the charm in its effects and in its style and tone like i i just really liked that there was just like kooky surreal details like the enormous fan when they entered like the men in black headquarters yeah like things like that made me think of like coen brothers like just very or even like jean-pierre Jeunet almost just very kooky and strange yeah. without having to be more than just like setting some sort of like world building and tone that this movie was very good at loved the character design of of the aliens so many different types of styles of characters too i just felt like that worked the best yeah, I love that so much. And even just the amount of detail on aliens who you never spend any time with and don't have any lines in the movie is just really interesting to look at. This felt like the Tim Burton movie. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It feels like Beetlejuice. I kind totally of, get it. Like that kind of like you can do anything. Like aliens could be anything. So what are you like? Let your imagination run wild, and it does. Like the aliens are pretty inventive. Like all kinds of different ones, and like. They end up surprising you like their head is not their head or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of wackiness. But (laughs) yeah, I I agree with that. And I thought Will Smith was good. Like we didn't talk a ton about him in Independence Day because I don't think there was a ton to talk about. Yeah. I think he was good at delivering kind of bland lines well and like delivered those lines better than most people could. But here he's given a little bit like he's a real like presence here. Like his personality drives the script must have been written for him, I think, or at least like rewritten for him because there's so many lines that I can't imagine. I think rewritten for him once he was cast. I read somewhere that like he's he's one of the most extensive rewriters among Hollywood leading men, like alongside Brad Brad Pitt, I think. It, yeah, the, the character about. feels tailor-made for him in a way that, like, I don't think you would have done this character this way if it had been anyone else. And I watched this one first of all these movies, so... Same. Like, low expectations, and then was like, oh, like, I had kind of forgotten what Will Smith was like. He's still in Fresh Prince mode here, where he's very charismatic and funny and like he's becomes kind of a bland actor and like doesn't do a lot of comedy i mean he doesn't do a lot anymore anyway but like did some very drippy dramas like Mm -hmm. some of his seven pounds and (laughs) drippy dramas i mean that's what it is that term it's so perfect that's what it is concussion (laughs) and um Brain What's that dripping? terrible one with like all the angels? Oh or... god, I can't even remember. Yeah, but, like yeah. he was an After Earth. Yeah, um... that's a whole story. But like that's what I associate with him now is like this sort of like overly serious actor. And I was like, oh look, Will Smith is funny. Who knew? And I was like, oh yeah, everyone knew that at this point. But unfortunately, his like reputation kind of didn't bear that out because he did so many years of like bad bombs, basically. After like. He was, like, the number one star in the world because he had, like, 
seven to eight movies in a row go over a hundred million dollars. Like I remember thinking like, wow, like Will Smith is like the biggest star in the world. He was literally. And like they, there was all these like jokes about how he owned Independence Day. Cause like this came out on Independence Day weekend again. Mm-hmm, that's and right. maybe wild, wild West did too, or at least like it was a summer movie. So I think it, was it was like a summer movie. Yeah. That was his mm-hmm. thing. And, and <laughs> yeah, I just, but... I forgot that, comedy was a part of that somehow. I do want to highlight how good I thought Will Smith's performance was, especially the physical comedy of it. Even like the the gun that he's given as a as an agent of the Men in Black is like the the noisy cricket which is this teeny tiny little gun that blows him across whatever space he's in. But literally I thought one of the funniest moments in this whole movie is when he's first arrived along with a lineup of these just insanely over-decorated military service members who all have, like, 20 epaulets of distinction and, you know, like, super high-ranking military people. And he's an NYPD cop showing up for his kind of trial run at the Men in Black headquarters. They give all of them pencil and paper and, like, a written exam. And he's, like, struggling and, like, almost immediately breaks the pencil in half and, like, can't write. The scene goes on in almost complete silence for a really long time. So he just, like, goes over to the side of the room where there's this weird-shaped table and slowly drags the table over to where he's seated so he can do the test. And I thought that was one of the funniest moments. And I remember, like, when I first saw the movie in the theater, like, he's not saying a word, nobody's saying a word, but he's like loudly dragging this table across the room was fucking hilarious. I agree on that moment. And I was actually going to say that and one other scene, I think is my favorite Will Smith moments. And neither of them have dialogue. Tommy Lee Jones character is interviewing somebody in the foreground and in the background, Will Smith is helping deliver, I guess you could call it uh, an alien baby in the back of a car. A squid. A squid. And the alien squid has giant tentacles and is like, like grabbing him into the car and like pulls smacking him into him. the car, p- pushes him out of the other open window on the other side of the station wagon, throws him over the station wagon again. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just hilarious. like it's perfect it's so cartoon. Great. You know, a cartoon scene. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, hey, um, damn man, Kate, <laughs> something's peeking. Proactive Fifty Fourth Madison. You're headed out of town, Reggie. What's going on? Oh, well, we're, we're meeting someone. Who are you meeting? Well, it's a ship. A ship? I didn't see a departure clearance for today. You didn't? No. Well, it's, uh, well, it's an emergency. What? You're doing fine, Ace. What kind of emergency? What's the rush to get off the planet all this stuff? We just don't like the neighborhood anymore. Just some of the, uh... New arrivals. What new arrivals? Have anything to do with the crasher from last night? Oh, man. Oh, okay. Look. Oh, man. (laughs) Congratulations, Reg. It's a squid. And it totally works. But then afterwards, they're in the car after, like, the, the squid baby's born and throws up on him and, like... He's in the car, and then Tommy Lee Jones goes to him, anything about that seem unusual to you? Like, clearly looking for another answer. And Will Smith just looks at him like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, like, just his look. And that look cracked me up. 
he kind of gets on my nerves a little bit with the constant like Will Smithisms in this, where it's like talking back to people and making fun of people. But I think he is an excellent actor, even when he's not talking at all. He's just like giving a certain look, and he's like nailing that moment. I think the the way that you were just describing it helped me kind of like differentiate in my own mind what we're talking about as like the Will Smithism of it is the moments where he like has to add in a one liner to like add an additional punchline to the thing that was already like a fully fleshed out joke. Mm-hmm. But like the moments where he works the best and where it's genuinely fucking hilarious is when he's deadpan in his own way. You know, because, like, Tommy Lee Jones' character is entirely deadpan, like, totally bone dry. But Will Smith's character, I I agree with you, is totally at his absolute funniest in the moments where he's not, like, trying to, like, draw a big chalk circle and, like, aim a big spotlight down at where the comedy is supposed to be and the thing that you're supposed to be laughing at. It's just the funny thing happens, and all he has to do is, like, give a look, and that's hilarious, and that's enough. I have logistical issues with the squid baby scene because the <laughs> tentacles are too big to fit. Like, huh? Chris, it's, an, it's, a, it's a fucking Chris, cartoon. It's um, not a cartoon. As, as one of this p- a podcast's professed agnostics, you have a certainty about tentacles and the laws of physics surrounding tentacles that I think is undue. I think you have undue confidence, sir. I need more empirical evidence. Do you mean it wouldn't fit out of her vagina? Like, what are you yes. talking about? Do you think those are the you only places? You don't know what her vagina looks like. Maybe her vagina I know it's not that big. You don't know where they're able to hide their tentacles either. I just assumed she was an alien, too. Yes. Yeah. But, like, how does she fit? She's a small lady. Chris, I need to check you on your humanistic privilege <laughs> Chris, right now. Out of all the issues to have of this movie, I feel like I'm that is not I'm just saying I don't buy that scene. It didn't seem realistic to me. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but, like, I want to agree with both of you guys. The first scene in Men in Black, when he's doing the test, what I loved about that is that it had nothing to do with aliens or exactly where he was. It was this kind of silent physical comedy scene that could have been in any movie where he's like a fish out of water like he it's just character building like him he's not these guys basically he's not this buttoned up military guy he's this kind of like streetwise new york cop and he thinks outside the box yeah so it's like i loved that like a movie that like has so many opportunities for comedy just like let this scene be like a scene that you could see in like I Love Lucy or any kind of, like, physical comedian. I forgot to bring it up, but, like, even all the seats in that room are, like, these weird upside-down, like, egg chairs. Very 60s. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. It's, like, they're so... It's genuinely so funny that they just let it play out like that. The MVP for me is Vincent D'Onofrio in this movie. And, um... Egger. Egger. Sugar. (laughs) Sugar water. Oh, God. That's that's a little too good. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I worked on it. He reminded me of Martian Lady in Mars Attacks with the performance and the physical, the physical performance where they're supposed to be playing an alien and they are just doing such an an amazing job with their body and showing something is wrong with this person, (laughs) you know, but I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) He looks perfectly fine to me. (laughs) 
truly, no, like, I literally wrote, like, Vincent D'Onofrio is the MVP of this movie. Like, literally I, verbatim. I wrote Vincent D'Onofrio is so gross. <laughs> oh, yeah, but he's nailing that, like, yes. the makeup, but also Perfectly. his physical body, his performance. It made me realize that aside from him and Lisa Marie in Mars Attacks, I'm not sure of other performances of actors as aliens that I've seen that, to me, seem convincingly alien. Like, in almost every other case, it's clearly a human pretending to be monstrous. Unless we're talking about, like, Doug Jones, I think, would be an exception to that, because he can play anything. Um, sure. But but the physicality Vincent D'Onofrio embodies, it's believably alien in a way that's, like, both slapsticky funny and also, like, really freaky and serious at the same time. I feel like I'm starting to ship Lisa Marie and Vincent D'Onofrio <laughs> as a couple, and I really want that spinoff. I really want that movie. Why can we not have that movie? But that said, I did also love his wife, Beatrice. She's great. She has such a strange like vocal cadence that also just makes those scenes so much funnier. It's one of the most memorable things of this movie, which is funny because it's not... Her lines aren't really that funny, like, on paper. And, like, in any other movie, like, the wife of the guy who gets, like you know, infested with an alien <laughs> is not going to be a memorable character. And yet she's one of the first things I remember yeah. about this movie. She's and memorable. And soup. Edgar, what on earth was that? Sugar. I've never seen sugar do that. Give me sugar. And water. More. More. Oh. Your skin is hanging off your bones. I almost wanted to put it on subtitles when she was talking about like very strange cadence. I don't think I knew that his name was Edgar because I think I was always like, what's his name? Edgar? Edgar? Edgar. I just need to shout out Vincent D'Onofrio. I wanted him to be on screen all the time, despite him being gross and I don't like bugs. Um, But I just felt like the movie like lit up for me because I guess this is issues I have with specifically like Will Smith's character is that I don't know anything about Smith's character's backstory. Does he not have family? Is he like an orphan? Is he like the perfect person to want to be in a life where he literally can't be with anybody? Like he has to be, you know, dedicated to his job fully. Like I wanted a little bit more. I totally agree with that. Like it, like this movie is so lean. There's not an ounce of fat on this movie, which I appreciate. But like, if the story is that you have to give up your whole life, like, we don't see that he has a life, and I think we're supposed to kind of think that he doesn't, but I'm like, Will Smith is very charming. <laughs> like, yeah, I do girlfriend? not believe that he is, like, single, doesn't have friends. Or his like, mom, or a sister, or just, like, what is he giving up to yeah. join the Men in Black? And that would add a lot to this. And then there's, like, the Tommy Lee Jones story where he, like, gave up one woman, but it's like, that's not enough. And it really should be more on Will Smith's character. And like, what is he gaining by joining the men in black? Is he missing a father figure? Like, 
is he getting something out of that relationship with Kay? Like, we don't know. It would, it would, even just something, if there was a goodbye scene, you know, so we see what he's saying goodbye to and maybe what he's looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I have to say, I pretty much totally agree with that. Yeah. And I think that's what stops and has stopped this movie from being like a favorite movie is that there's no story really in terms of like characters. Like barely Tommy Lee Jones has like a little bit of sentimentality and maybe I guess their relation like K and J is kind of like the story, but it's like it's really just plot, not a story. It was weird to me rewatching it, just seeing how there's no fat on this movie's bones at all. It is a tightly configured machine, but I wondered why they spent relatively much more time giving dramatic weight to Tommy Lee Jones and his situation than they did to Will Smith, especially because Will Smith's character is supposed to replace Tommy Lee Jones, ultimately. That didn't make sense to me, because like in the very beginning of the movie, it's like the other guy retires and leaves Tommy Lee Jones, and I'm like, like, why are they doing this retirement beat twice? Like, it was like... I feel like that should be, like, the sequel is, like, when Tommy Lee Jones says this. Like, it felt, like, weird to repeat. I agree. That, like... Yeah, well, yeah. especially because it they didn't make it feel like that intro sequence was a long time ago. Tommy Lee Jones looked exactly the same age. Yeah. So, like, it felt like it was happening one right after it the other. It should have been... But I guess that's why he's looking for a new partner. Yeah, or they sh- should have had a, like, cast a young Tommy Lee Jones actor, you know? it's like Because there's so many young guys that look exactly like Tommy Lee Jones. Well, I mean, that the reason that they, they're looking for, they get Will Smith, because they're looking for, he needs a partner. Right. So it has to have happened recently, but I totally understand what you mean. Like, it, sh- it should have been, like, I don't know, yeah, something about him it being younger, and now it's his time to retire. Yeah, it just felt weird. Because, like, that guy is significantly older than Tommy Lee Jones, so it just feels weird that Tommy Lee Jones, like, all of a sudden retires. Like, it just, it's very yeah. unmotivated. Did you guys like Tommy Lee Jones in this movie? <sighs> I can't picture anyone else, but, like, that doesn't mean that no one else could have done it. Like, I just, I didn't really care about him or Will Smith, to be honest. So, like, I guess somebody probably could have done it better. Where I landed on it this time was, like, ultimately I felt like Tommy Lee Jones and Rip Torn were too close together. Yeah. Mm, I see that, too. You know? And they're not even competing mentor figures. They're kind of equivalent, identical mentor figures. And I enjoy them both as performers, but I thought Rip Torn did such a better job eating up the scenery as, like, a fake hard-ass that I almost wish that those two characters had been combined. Again, Tommy Lee Jones, I thought, had great moments of, like, the anything anything about that seem off to you. Like, I, mm-hmm. I thought he did do a good job selling some of those. He's a good actor in general. Yeah, but again, just those two characters kind of really felt too interchangeable to justify how much screen time both of them got. Yeah, I agree. It's like, there was, there's a redundancy between those two, and also, like... Tommy Lee Jones is, like, grizzled and sarcastic, and then Will Smith is, like, sarcastic and, like, energetic. So it's, like, I feel like maybe the other agent needed to be, like, really gung-ho and, like, you know, like, upbeat or something so that Will Smith could be kind of, like, I don't know. I mean, now I'm just rewriting the movie, but it just felt like there was something kind of off about, like, the conception of these characters and how they, like, bounce off each other. Unlimited technology from the whole universe, and we cruise around in a Ford POS. Fasten your seatbelt. See, now we got to work on your people skills. You know, you get a much better reaction if you were a little more polite. Fasten your seatbelt, please. Whoa, that was good. Did you hear what you said? 
I didn't hate it. I just think it would have helped if I just knew a little bit more about them. Because mm-hmm. I think that's what stopped me from really enjoying their characters and getting anything out of their story because I felt like it wasn't really headed anywhere. There's a line in this movie that Tommy Lee Jones says, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals. Because this was literally the next note I had. (laughs) And that line has so stuck with me and I didn't remember where it came from, but I think about that line all the time when I'm thinking about people and like how people behave differently than a person would behave all the time. Like you see masses of people doing things that don't make any sense. I will not specifically name a group of people (laughs) that we've been contending with (laughs) recently. But like I always think about that as like if you could get to like the one person, I you might be able to like talk some sense into them if you could like separate them from the herd, but somehow the herd is so dumb. I wrote it down for the entirely opposite reason. Whoa. I hate this line. That line is referenced everywhere. Literally, I've heard it referenced by incredibly powerful political figures saying that a person is smart, people are dumb. It was funny rewatching this movie now, post 9-11. We've seen the creation of a completely unaccountable surveillance state. Everything that we ever do in our lives now leaves a trace and is spied on. And this movie is kind of adjacent to Copaganda in a way. I think it's like spy aganda. <laughs> this Men in Black organization is a CIA-like organization, and there's no real justification anywhere for the power that it has registering aliens that come from other planets. And much of what the Men in Black actually do is murder aliens, and that's seen as like good and noble and heroic work. I like internally revolted against that line. And if we had grown up in any country that had any kind of collective identity in a place that believed that community is important and that building a society together is an important thing rather than, you know, rely on individual people with massive weapons to blow our problems away. I don't think that people would as easily approve of that kind of sentiment. I just think it's an incredibly Cold War American idea that only individual people can be reasoned with and that only individual people can be reasonable. That's a lot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know it's it hard to it argue is. with that. It made me think more about this movie than I ever expected to. I agree with Chris, but on Seth's <laughs> note, I found it interesting that the premise of this movie is that there is a huge crisis happening to the world and the right move is to keep humans ignorant of it. Yeah. <laughs> Which I found like, hmm... <laughs> Like, so we're not supposed to know. Part of the reason why so many people still believe in UFOs in that way is just because the government covered up everything. And so to, like, hear, like, this movie put forward this philosophy that, like, oh, we have to keep this secret because people are just too stupid to know. But, like, it's a comedy, so I feel like it's satirizing that. And so that's what I think works about it. And, I mean, you could debate that question a lot, obviously, like... It's not a flat out true statement, but I mean, like you can, like Becky's point, like, yes, it's good to let people know things, but also like we've, we've just been through so much, but it's like, we've also seen like collective people making dumb, terrible decisions that I don't think individual people would have made. And so like one thing that like kind of tipped me off, like early in this movie is like one of the first scenes where we meet Tommy Lee Jones is when they're stopping a truck that's crossing the border from Mexico and there's a lot of Mexican people in the back and Border Patrol stops them and so like 
like they're illegal aliens, haha. And then the men in black show up and one of them is a different kind of an alien. That could have played differently, but like the men in black are also just like to the once they take care of the alien, they're like, you guys just go ahead. So it feels like to me like the movie's kind of on the side of I don't know, it just it didn't seem like a like really like as jingoistic as you're kind of describing it. Like it felt more in on the joke and that it was satirizing the way that like this is all covered up. But I, I don't necessarily feel like it's actually saying this is a good thing. See, I completely disagree with that. One of this movie's central plot devices is a literal device that makes people forget everything that just happened. But I feel like that's, that's so... Like, that's not ma- But that's not making fun of it. That is a central element to their power and their ability to do their job as men in black. Without that, like, forgetty, <laughs> forgetty tool, like... Flashy thing. It's a neuralizer. The flashy thing. Come on. Yeah, without that, they would not be Believe able to do science. what they do. We live in a country that, like, one of the points of propaganda is to make us collectively forget what has been done, what people in power do in our names. I know that this is, like, way more serious than this movie ever attempts to be, but it was interesting to me how that plot device of the Neuralizer thing was so central to this movie, and I don't think it's making fun of that at all. I do, because I think Will Smith is critical of it and, like, tries to get Kay to stop using it, especially on, like, Linda Fiorentino. And I think, like, we're seeing this through Will Smith's eyes, and he's constantly, like, kind of questioning these things. And this, like, yeah, the movie doesn't go very deep on any of this stuff, but I... Like, I leave the movie feeling uncomfortable about the Neuralizer. Like, I don't think it feels like it's just, like, accepted that this is the right way to do it. It's just, like, to me, it's, like, it's satirizing the way that, like, the real government would try and, like, make these things disappear. Anybody else feel like it's weird that a female mortician would walk around a cold morgue all day in heels and a miniskirt? No. (laughs) No, I think that's perfectly normal. Mm, Okay. I did a survey among female morticians I know. Mm, At least she's not a stripper. (laughs) At least she's not a stripper. (laughs) I really like Linda Fiorentino. I really don't. (laughs) I really like Linda Fiorentino. We are two to one on that. Mm, We are two to one on that. very funny that a giant head opens with an alien inside and she's like, wow. (laughs) Like she has no reaction at all. That's one of the things that I think works. And I think this movie in most directions could have been sharpened a little bit to be like a little funnier, maybe a little edgier, but like her character is quirky and weird. And that's why I think it works. Sergeant Friday from the 26th precinct. A cat came in with a corpse the other day. uh, Orion on the name tag. Yes, that's right. Right. Uh, Well, this cat is a, uh, a witness in a murder case. Somebody to take him with me, ask him a few questions. Well, I don't know where the cat is right now. Oh, you don't? No, but maybe you could take me with you instead. <laughs> Damn, you do start fast, don't you? I'd really like to go with you. Now. Uh-huh. And, uh, exactly why is that? something I need to show you. Mm, Slow down, girl. You ain't gotta hit the gas like that. No, you don't understand. You really need to see this. Oh, I will. I will. Oh, uh, one thing. I gotta drive. You know, it's not some macho trip. I'm what I'm saying. That's just the way I get down. Like, you could easily see her being like, 
the bimbo that's in a lot of action comedies. Instead, she has a little bit of a darkness to her, and so I feel like that's funny. Of course, they, like, hook up with a mortician in this movie, although I did not like how she just, like, gets stuck in a tree for most of the end of the movie. I just didn't yeah. like what they did with her. It's not Maybe it's not really her. It's just, like, the character I felt yeah. like was kind of wasted. I love the edge to her character. I do genuinely just love that she is a mortician and that, like, that's a character in a movie because that is really not a typical character. I did think, aside from the moment at the end where she, like, blows up the second alien bug that's about to kill our our heroes, I do think she's mostly a damsel in distress. Like, that's functionally what she ends up being for most of the plot, unfortunately. I do wish that they had fought more against the Neuralizer on her. I wish she had retained her memory. I don't actually like it that it was used on Will Smith either, because it seems pointless, because he, like, uses it on Will Smith, but then is like, come visit the men in black, so you can look at aliens. It's like, well, why did he erase his memory if he wants him to come be a men in black? That was weird. The coffee aliens, they're cute. I was going to say, what is your favorite alien in the movie? Coffee aliens. Because Um. they have coffee, it has nothing to do with the aliens. (laughs) You just want coffee. Yeah. Wanga! Wanga! <laughs> How you doing, fellas? Oh, shit! Okay. That's not decaf, is it? Viennese cinnamon. Oh, don't tell me we only got that powder stuff for cream again. I hate that stuff. No, the Greek has a twaka. Oh, it's crazy. I love Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. But I also love... I love the alien inside the dude's head. Oh, that little weird guy? Yeah, like that's the, the power guy. of Rick Baker. Come uh, on, It's come a on. good effect, I just didn't like it. I like the... I, like- I felt sad when he died, and, like, the kitty was crying for him. The kitty cat was sad. I was annoyed, because he wasn't talking right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. He kept going to me, like, Orion's... He was trying to say Orion's belt, but I'm like, it's not a belt. It's Stupid a alien doesn't know American English words. I like the the alien in the beginning when it when you reveal the alien. I really liked that <laughs> intro sequence. I really liked oh, yeah. the head, the Mexican yeah. guy's yeah. head. Yeah, and the makeup was great on the head. I liked how the National Enquirer was like actually true. <laughs> I still genuinely loved that. Like they called that. What did they call it? The hot sheets. Yeah, I loved that. Does the Men in Black only have 26 agents because it's Agent K and Agent J? <laughs> Who knows? And there's Is also, like, only two that we ever meet. Right, yeah, where are the other agents? Are they, like, in different parts of the world? So they're, like, they're the two New York Foreign agents? Foreign alphabets? I don't know. I bet like, Men in Black International answers whoa. that question. Oh, God. Too bad I'm never going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I bet it answers it horribly. Steve, we're approaching our board limits. I hear her. Barely, but but, but she's, she's there. Okay, go! She says she's okay to go. Steve, we're real close. Electrical, what's your reading in the core? The internal environment looks normal. Inside the core, the weather's beautiful. Okay to go! Okay to go! Segway when you go from one thing into another. So speaking of a segue, let's move on to contact. (laughs) Here come the men in black and there they go. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about contact. Let's make some contact, guys. I think those men in black are okay to go. (laughs) They're okay to go. They're okay to go. Contact is directed by Robert Zemeckis. It was written by James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg. 
It's based on the novel by the famous astronomer Carl Sagan. It stars Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey, James Woods, John Hurt, Jenna Malone, and Angela Bassett. It was released on July 11th, 1997. The budget was $90 million, and the box office was $166 million. It was nominated for one Oscar for Best Sound. Robert Zemeckis was offered the chance to direct Contact, but he turned it down because he was developing a movie about Harry Houdini, which in retrospect sounds like a very Zemeckis-y type of movie, I Absolutely. feel like. He recalled that he really liked the script of Contact until the very last page. Quote, it had the sky open up and these angelic aliens putting on a light show. And I said, that's just not going to work. It worked in Close Encounters, but <laughs> I agree that it wouldn't have worked in this movie. So Warner Brothers offered the movie to George Miller instead perfect choice (laughs) oh my god miller cast jodie foster and he asked the screenwriter to make the pope a supporting character (laughs) and then warner brothers fired george miller (laughs) was it because of the pope thing (laughs) (laughs) it just i think it was clear it was not a good fit they went back to zemeckis and they offered him final cut and so he agreed wow the movie had mixed reviews roger ebert gave it three and a half stars and said that contact tells the smartest and most absorbing story about extraterrestrial intelligence since close encounters of the third kind movies like contact help explain why movies like independence day leave me feeling empty and unsatisfied (laughs) wow shots fired (laughs) yeah did you guys see contact when you were younger I sure did. Yes. Like all these movies. I saw it in theaters. Um, I remember this being a really striking theatrical experience, mainly because of the sound design. Like, I really remember that alien sound that I'm making a yes. hand motion of. <laughs> yeah, Again, I wasn't going to do that. The but. fact that we're not a visual podcast takes so much from our viewership. The people who can't see us gesturing... I think, like, these other movies that we talked about today had primed me for this to be a slightly different kind of movie. I'm not sure it was clear exactly how cerebral this was going to be, because <laughs> probably that's not a good marketing strategy. <laughs> so I knew it wasn't going to be Independence Day. But I didn't know if there were going to be, like, aliens that ended up, like, showing up, you know, at the end, or were they bad or were they good? So, like, I wasn't quite prepared for how sentimental and thoughtful this movie was going to be. But I was intrigued, and And I ended up reading the book by Carl Sagan. And it was kind of like Jurassic Park, like much more science-y than I was expecting. Because I didn't know who Carl Sagan was at the time. I thought it was a book. Well, it was. But it was... still a book. (laughs) (laughs) Turned out to be a book. But it was, yeah, heavier on the science than probably like my eighth grade self would have like quite understood. But, you know, I liked the book. I remember it's very striking. There's a female president in the book, which felt very progressive for, I mean, the book was in the 80s. This I was reading it, you know, in the late 90s, but still pretty progressive. And do you remember if it hews pretty closely to the the story that's in the movie? There's a lot of differences. I mean, overall, it's the same, but there's five scientists who go instead of just one. There's oh, wow. a lot of different, and it's much okay. more of a global thing. I was really curious about that. Okay, A lot of the plot beats are the same, but then there's also just things that make it fundamentally different like that. Mm-hmm. So, like, in a way, I wanted it to be more like the movie, because, like, you know, you're just like, I liked the movie, I want to read the book. Oh, this <laughs> book is different. You don't, like, understand about adaptation so much of that, you know, at that time. But I ended up buying this on VHS, and this is one of my movies that I would watch frequently, and also, like, Independence Day, watched it a year ago when I was in the mood for <laughs> a global event 
slightly different in tone than Independence Day, but um, it was a nice, I guess, counterbalance with those two. So yeah, I've revisited this movie pretty often. Seth, are you okay to go? I'm okay to go. I truly cannot remember if I saw this movie in theaters. I think that I didn't see this movie in theaters, but I know that I saw it very quickly when it debuted on cable. This was a movie that played on like HBO, HBO 2, Showtime, and Cinemax, I think for like a decade unabated. Anytime I had some kind of extended vacation from school, this movie would be on cable a lot. So even though I didn't see it when it first came out, I saw it very soon after the theatrical debut. And like the moment that I first saw it on cable, I was absolutely sucked into this story and like so taken with how cerebral it was, just specifically and also like so taken by its vision of what science could be and like what scientific exploration could be. I was a gigantic Star Trek nerd when I was growing up, not just Star Wars. I was particularly into Star Trek because it had such a utopian and just open-minded vision of what science could be and what that kind of exploration could lead to. And I felt like Contact was one of those movies that just really carried that spirit, but obviously was doing so in like a, a story that was taking place on planet Earth. And that was showing characters who were scientists. You know, at that age, as a kid who was incredibly nerdy and who didn't have the best social skills, etc. Jodie Foster's character was kind of a role model in a way of like someone who was a, a badass and someone who seen as cool and interesting. Yeah, I just really connected to the movie overall, like very soon after it came out and connected very much with Jodie Foster's character very much from the time I was a kid. And I hadn't rewatched it really in a, in a pretty long time, like probably 10 years, maybe 15 years. But I really, really enjoyed Contact. I saw it in theaters. I remember, how old would I have been? 13? 14? I think I was pretty bored until, like, the last sequence when she is actually, like, you know, in the machine. And I may have seen it maybe once or twice after, but it was... it. The movie made me feel dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and I also was just like, this is a lot of talking. <laughs> It is. It's a real talkie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real talkie. <laughs> Which is maybe not what I wanted <laughs> from my alien movies back then. I don't know. But I don't really remember anything else besides I remember that sequence at the end being very exhilarating in the theater and, and the thing that people were like, you got to go to contact and you like go through this very long movie to get to that sequence. What is being called the message from Vega has caused thousands of believers and non-believers to descend upon the VLA facility here in the remote desert of New Mexico. Many have come to protest, many to pray, but most have come to participate in what has become the best show in town. Chance. Are these the kind of people that you want 
talking to your God for you? So that was then. This is now. Uh, we rewatched Contact. And what did you think? Making contact once again with this film. Not only do I still absolutely love it, I loved it even more now. I hadn't rewatched it in a long time, and I felt kind of sad the moment that it was over that I hadn't rewatched it more. <laughs> <laughs> so many more layers of the meanings and, you know, kind of depth of this movie are very readily apparent watching it now. A lot of layers that I just had no context for as a kid. And, you know, there are moments of it that kind of just go to normal Hollywood cornball. I mean, I think both of these movies, Men in Black and Contact, are a kind of different level and a cut, uh, several cuts above the movie, the other movies that we've discussed (laughs) in this summer, Alien Invasion Spectacular. But Contact is just a, a completely different movie that's trying to do things and asking questions and investigating concepts that none of these other movies even have any passing interest in. And it's not just a cerebral kind of movie, it's an incredibly emotional movie, and especially now, it, it to me, it did a surprisingly great job of dramatically grounding all of its characters, very patiently dramatically grounding them and setting up what the stakes of this mission are for each of the characters in this, and especially for Jodie Foster's character. And yeah, like I'll talk about how much I love Carl Sagan and how grateful I am for him, but I'm kind of surprised in retrospect that a movie this thoughtful ever got made. I'm especially surprised that this movie was directed by Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> this and Roger Rabbit are the two movies that like disprove my Zemeckis distaste. Yeah, this this movie more than held up for me. I, w- I was very, very happy watching this movie and very touched. Ditto. <laughs> Interesting. I've always really liked this movie, and I'm not sure if, like, in high school... I always liked it in a lot of ways, but I'm not sure... Yeah, I think there were some themes that maybe didn't connect to me as well in high school. And when I watched it, last year it really clicked and I was like this is one of my favorite movies (laughs) almost you know perfect in every way and then I watched it again it was literally today that I watched this movie again and I was like I like it even more (laughs) honestly that's the thing like I I think I may only like this movie more and more when I watch it more times exactly um like for some reason even more things like came out to me when I was watching it today maybe because I was like you know thinking, like, I have to say something about this movie instead of just, I love it. Um, Movie good. Yeah. I think this movie is so underrated. I am now, in retrospect, shocked that it wasn't nominated for more Oscars, especially for... Especially Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. Especially, I looked at who else was nominated. It was, like, Judy Dench for Mrs. Brown, Helena Bonham Carter for Wings of the Dove. It was a very, like, like <laughs> lineup. That, you know, it was... And this performance is just so... Like, she's so committed. She's the perfect casting. I mean, no one else could have played this part. And this think. movie rides on her. This yeah. movie rides entirely on her as a character and that performance. Science fiction. Oh, you're right. It's... It's crazy. In fact, it's even worse than that. Nuts. You want to hear something really nutty? I heard of a couple guys that want to build something called an airplane. You know, you get people to go in it and then fly around like birds. It's ridiculous, right? 
Or what about, what about uh, breaking the sound barrier? Or uh, rockets to the moon? Or atomic energy? Or a mission to Mars? Science fiction, right? Look, all I'm asking is, is for you to just have the tiniest bit of vision. You know, to, to step back for one minute and look at the big picture. To take a chance on something that just might end up being the most profoundly impactful moment for humanity, for, for the history of history. Like, you need an actress who's that intelligent to sell yes. this. Like, I, there aren't, I don't think, that many big stars who can project that kind of level of intelligence. And yeah, I, like, I just, I kind of am increasingly blown away that this movie isn't more celebrated, more talked about, more revered. And I'm not also a very big Zemeckis fan either. So I'm like, I think this is far and away his best movie. And yeah, I, perfect. <laughs> I don't know. Like, good job. <laughs> ten out of I ten. Mean, obviously, I'll get into a lot of other things too. But I think there's just so much richness here, so much thematic stuff to dig into. That's like really, really interesting, and like more comes out to me every time I watch it. I watched this movie last of the four movies that we talked about in these episodes, and I felt like an adult had finally entered the conversation. <laughs> finally, I'm telling you, finally a grown-up made a movie in this whole group? Oh, what a gift! a grown-up has walked in and is like, I will tackle aliens now. Step aside. <laughs> it was like a breath of fresh air. And I didn't like hate everything, you know, yeah. that no. I was just like, oh my god, just I by needed... <laughs> Truly. I needed a different take. <laughs> aliens. <laughs> well, these movies are so different in different ways. Men in Black is the one that's not about like kind of an invasion sort of scenario right. or like discovering, you know, it's like It's like they've they been here it, forever, you know. Yeah, yeah, but like this one obviously like, <laughs> is a little different. <laughs> I liked it and I think one of the examples of how much I liked it was I didn't really write any notes because <laughs> I was watching it. I watched it with my husband, who loves astronomy and loves Carl Sagan and has never seen this movie. So he was kind of blown away that he had never seen it. Because, like, what's the giant thing in the beginning of the movie (laughs) that they're, like, in front of? Okay, so that's the Arecibo radio telescope. All right, so my husband knew what that was. (laughs) So already I was like, how have you not seen this movie? This is the perfect movie for you. It was interesting. I think I am adult enough to not need, like... (laughs) Like, the, the conversation and the talking that leads up to the, the giant sequence at the end, like, I could actually, like, dig into that as an adult, you know? So that was, um, that was fortunate, I guess, that I've grown up some. You and could the- listen to adults talk now and not be like, God. Yeah. <laughs> we can sit at the grown-up table now. It's yeah. It's pretty cool. I had a feeling you both would like it, despite, I know, your opinions on Mr. Zemeckis. <laughs> um, so I, I am, I'm happy to say that I like, this is the most I've liked it, that I've ever watched it, and I enjoyed it, but didn't like, I wasn't like blown away, I just liked it, but in the last day, I've been thinking about it a lot, and part of me is like, kind of would like to watch it again, and maybe this time with subtitles, or like, maybe find the script or something, like, and really dig into it, Um, because afterwards, me and my husband had, like, a lot of, like, good conversations about, like, religion and faith and, you know, things like that, Um, and discussing the movie um, that I felt like, I just felt like a very adult. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, like after this movie that's very yeah, cerebral, yeah. like having these conversations about spirituality and, and <laughs> space and alien. Like, I just, um, it was good. I, I really do look forward to watching it again. And I really think that that ending sequence took me back into being in the movie theater. And it made me be like, I wish I was in a movie theater right now watching this. Yeah, this is one of those movies that they don't like replay at like the Hollywood Forever Cemetery or a repertory theater, but like is the perfect movie to actually go see back in a theater. I would love to see this in a theater. Love to see in a theater. Oh my God. But I've never seen this like, oh, this is showing. You know, it's like it's not one of those movies that enough people have a thing for. Although maybe I don't know. Someone someone do it and we'll see. I want to start at the beginning of this movie because the Mm, WB logo is so pretty. Oh, wait. Oh. Oh. You're going even further before. Oh, I wasn't good. (laughs) But then I want to go to the next scene, which is so cool. I knew what this opening sequence was, and it was still very exhilarating. I totally had forgotten it. It's enthralling, and I could tell that my husband, who had never seen it, like, already he was like, huh? (laughs) <laughs> like, he was, like, caught off guard by the movie starting in this fashion. Because it starts with, like, almost, like, an instant media res, like, music's playing! <laughs> you know, like, whoa, what? Like, that's not usually how movies start. Um, and then you hear some Spice Girls. Um, but, like, I remember, like, that is a pretty long sequence. And he was just like, oh, this is really clever. <laughs> like, going farther back into space, but having the metaphor being, like, you're going back in time, hearing, like, radio recordings and music. And it is it is very clever. It's a it's a great start to this movie. Robert Kennedy was shot in that ball. We are free at last. A sniper has fired at President Kennedy. I don't know how I forgot what the introductory shot of this movie is, but that whole sequence is like starting with a, a, an aerial view of Earth uh, and all the kind of radio and satellite and TV noise of, you know, humanity going on down below. Spice Girls, Funky Town. <laughs> and also like Hitler. <laughs> and then and then it keeps zooming out and out and out into like the endless expanse and silent vacuum of space. And you get further past, you know, humanity's entire reach with all the radio waves we've ever, you know, thrown off of this planet. And then zooming out to whole entire galaxies. And then you zoom out a bit more and reveal that it's all, like, just in the eye of Jodie Foster's character Ellie as a kid. And, like, what I love about it is that it starts off with all this noise. And you go back in time, like, past the Kennedy assassination, past... Pearl Harbor, and then it's just silence because that's when humanity started broadcasting was like, you know, in the 30s, I think, in this movie is when the first um, television broadcast that was like powerful enough. That's the Hitler um, Olympic Games um, that comes back later. And I love it because it's like it's interesting in its own right. Like it doesn't necessarily need to be connected to the like the plot and themes of the movie. But it so is because, like, what we then go to is Jenna Malone as young Jodie Foster on a radio trying to reach out to people. And and that's, like, her and her dad's, like, little thing. And she's already, as a young girl, like, trying to communicate with people who are out there. And it's, like, it's just such a beautiful way to write this character, like, that she's always this person and that she's always 
a curious person who's trying to reach out. And eventually we'll learn that like these radios and television signals that we hear in the beginning are what the aliens heard that caused them to send a message back to us. So it's like, it's not just like, oh, that's cool. But it's like, also like, this is literally what's setting the plot in motion. But you have no idea of that in the beginning. You're just mesmerized by this like really cool, great looking like special effect of like zooming out through the universe. And that moment stands alone without you having that context for it. But then adding that actual context for it, like really deepens it. One of the things that could have gone the most wrong is I just really appreciate the way this movie intercuts like Ellie now in the present with Ellie's childhood. I think it so effectively deepens her and makes her feel so much more human by just showing and not really telling in backstory, like all the moments that defined her personal character and just literally showing what her motivations are and what drives her as a scientist. They really stick in your mind, and there's not that many scenes. I think it's only two, but it feels like a big part of the movie, even though it doesn't take up much time. It's very economical, the way that they do it. I think Jenna Malone is really great as the young Jodie Foster. That was one of my other notes. Is I, I thought she did a fantastic job, and she's like her performance in particular stuck with me when I first saw the movie, and still sticks with me now. David Morris, perfect movie dad, doing a Atticus Finch kind of Atticus thing here. Finch. Almost too good to be true, but I'll, I'll take it because it's like her memories. And there's a really cool shot when her dad is dying where like you see her running down the hall toward oh, the yes. medicine cabinet. And we then need to talk about the shot. You see that like what you're actually seeing is the reflection in the medicine cabinet. It's hard to describe, but it's just like, you're like, whoa. No, like, I have seen this shot explained on like internet like videos being like because people are like wait what what did i just see because that happened with mike and he was just like whoa whoa whoa! you're gonna have to back that up (laughs) and we like and then i had to like go online and show him like how they did it (laughs) like i have no idea how they did it um i mean go look online I love Robert Zemeckis because he off <laughs> like he's known for being the special effects director, but he often employs special effects where you don't even really recognize their special effects mm-hmm. like a lot of Forrest Gump like I remember when it won mm-hmm. best special effects I was like what are the special effects in Forrest Gump it's like there's quite a lot actually mm-hmm. but it's because it's in the story that you don't recognize like it's not like big things are blowing up even though in this movie there are like very you know you see lots of special effects but like it's something like that that I feel like he just really excels at like making it a part of the story and like it's not necessary to do that but it somehow enhances the moment like it makes it because it's she's already like remembering it and kind of dreaming it and it Mm -hmm. makes it just kind of more dreamlike that it happens that way yeah i i just like the moments where you know because the spoiler (laughs) spoiler alert her dad dies relatively early in her childhood and like the moments where she's on the ham radio trying to call out to her dad are were just so sad and so like unexpectedly touching and it's like Again, I feel like in in 99 out of 100 movies of this type, like that would just go 
that would be hammy. It wouldn't just be ham radio. It would mm. be like really treacly. But like all of those moments just in this movie, they do a great job of just grounding them in that particular person. And it's believably human at every turn. Yeah, Zemeckis is someone who, in most of his movies, for me, gets hammy. And Absolutely. somehow this one doesn't, and especially the more I watch it, because I feel like some of those moments did play hammy the first time I saw this. But it's like the more I watch it, the more I get all the thematic depth and connection between like all these different themes that I'm like, I'm really actually just like really invested in the emotion. I thought Jodie Foster was fantastic. I can't believe she wasn't nominated. She's beautiful, but not in a you can't believe this person isn't a scientist way. She's not Denise Richards <laughs> know, in the world <laughs> is not enough. Dr. Christmas Snow or whatever her name is. Isn't it Christmas, Christmas Jones? Jones. <laughs> what Christmas Snow, Becky? Uh, that um, would be over the top. <laughs> you're insulting a scientist. I thought it, there's like scenes at the su- Supreme Court. It's a, just an inquisition. With she's in a trial or something. I don't no, know. No, she's like she... testifying before Congress. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what building she's, she's in. But like that and the, the final sequence, like I just, I was like, she's great. <laughs> she's, I know we, have, we just had our Science of the Lambs episode and I'm just like, yep, she is just fantastic. Can't imagine anyone else really in this part. Seems like something that maybe like Hillary Swank would do if it, she, it was a little bit farther down the line. No, thank you. But <laughs> but the thing is, like I I think that the 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 stuff is there in the script. Like I think that the writing is there, but I also think that Jodie Foster singularly elevates every second of this movie every single time she's on screen. I really enjoy scientists named Ellie. Mm, <laughs> you really, really do. It's a trend. Yeah. <laughs> what did you guys think of Matthew McConaughey? Yeah. I mean, for one, like she sleeps with him early on and then blows him off, which is completely unrelatable. She leave <laughs> he leaves his number, like he's so obviously into her. I'm like, girl. But I love that she blows him off. Yeah. I love that she blows him off. In Again, in like 100% of every other movie where some female lead character interacts and encounters Matthew McConaughey, they're going to go back to him as soon as possible. Yeah, I really like his character. There's so many ways you could do that character because he's religious. Like, that's his role is he's like sort of a theologian. Like, he's not exactly a priest, but he's has a lot of faith, believes in God. And that's like the opposing kind of conflict of this movie is she believes in science, he believes in God. And what does all this mean when you get contacted by extraterrestrials? Early on, they have great like banter. They're very cute together. I and love I, their I really, chemistry. I really I ship it. them even more than Lisa. But double date, please. (laughs) Could the movie be called Double Date? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are 400 billion stars out there just in our galaxy alone. If only one out of a million of those had planets, all right, and if just one out of a million of those had life, and if just one out of a million of those had intelligent life, there would be literally millions of civilizations out there. Well, if there wasn't, it'd be an awful waste of space. Amen. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that I was like, I don't think I was very interested in those questions when I first saw this movie. And I don't know that I 
completely understood why that was relevant to all this. And the more I watch this movie, the more it seems so important to like get into these questions. And I, I'll go into that even more, I think, a little bit later. But I think he's great casting because like this character could be really the way he's written is a little it's very earnest. It's it could it could go wrong. It could be really pedantic and preachy and assholey. Like it really could have gone so wrong. Chris, I line up with you very much on like I he wasn't he was a character I overtly hated when I first saw this movie that all those times on cable. At that time in my life, that was that was literally right about the time when I left the church. I, I was born and raised uh, Presbyterian. I was confirmed in the Presbyterian church. And it was about that time that I kind of came to realize I didn't really believe in God at all. And the role that Matthew McConaughey plays in this movie at the time really rubbed me wrong. And I really saw him as the villain in this. And and I no longer see him as the villain in a way I see him as a kind of companion in the journey that Ellie takes scientifically, even though McConaughey's character approaches it from a kind of faith tradition kind of standpoint. But I just think McConaughey's character, Palmer Joss, is so interesting. I, I love this kind of idea of like a hippie would-be priest fuckboy who <laughs> like just flits around the world looking for a greater truth um and i wish that more actual priests were people like him and not pederasts um <laughs> but again it's like there are incredibly few priest characters in movies even just as straight up priests you know like when i think of priests in movies i think of like exorcist you yeah. know where it's like the one thing that can be taken for granted is that they believe in that particular faith no matter what. In McConaughey's character, he never strikes me as a person who only believes in one kind of doctrine of faith and only that and is inflexible. Even though he is a faithful person and a spiritual person, he approaches all of this with an open enough mind that he kind of matches the energy of Ellie's character in the circumstances that she's encountering. And I don't just love their chemistry, I love the way that their relationship kind of plays out in this movie. Because it's absolutely not a will they or won't they. It's like they do immediately and then nothing comes of it for a long time. And then Ellie spends most of this movie like thinking that his character is going to undermine her at every turn and he's going to be the one to kind of destroy her chances and, and ruin her shot at solidifying this great discovery that she's made. But he ends up being like one of her biggest supporters. I read your book. Here we go. Would you like me to quote you? Ironically, uh, the thing that people are the most hungry for, meaning, is the one thing that science hasn't been able to give them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's like you're saying that science killed God. What if, what if science simply revealed that he never existed in the first place? I think we're going to need to get some air. What? And a few more of these. And I think this movie does a really smart thing in putting other religious figures in the movie. There's Rob Lowe has a very small role as like the conservative coalition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who represents what that would be. 
And then there's Jake Busey as a fanatic who, you know, plays a big role. But, like, he is another religious figure. So a lot of movies, I think, would have had Palmer Joss just be the religious guy. Yes. Instead, it's like, it's there's all these different tenets to it. It's not just that all religious people, you know, have this one idea. And also, not all religious people are the same stupid doctrinaire asshole. Only two out of three. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But even the presence of him, I thought, was so fascinating. And and I think, like, uh, you know, uh, again, like, a lot of this, a lot more of this goes to, I think, Carl Sagan's influence than I initially understood when I first saw this movie. Because it's really... It's handling spirituality in a more thoughtful way than I think a lot of other movies would. Yeah, there's something that, like, jumped out at me more this time was just the way that, like, Ellie being alone without her, her mother dies first, her father dies, um, and then, like, clearly, like, choosing to be, like, without a romantic partner because Palmer's clearly up for that at a certain point. And it just, like, it thematically mirrors being alone in the universe, that, like, loneliness, and... Then this movie is also, like, uh, Palmer Joss says at one point, like, about technology making people lonelier. And I was yeah. like, that is really interesting for 1997. Yeah. I know. I And I know that Palmer Joss line that you're talking about, where it's like, we're, we're able to, like, be at home and be on the internet and order pizza, but aren't we more disconnected now? And I'm like, this, is, this movie is grappling with questions that... I still don't feel like society is, like, adequately answered. Angela Bennett was just figuring out how to order a pizza. <laughs> Are you anti-technology? Are you anti-science? No, not at all. The question that I'm asking is this. Are we happier as a human race? Is the world fundamentally a better place because of science and technology? We shop at home, we surf the web, but... At the same time, we feel emptier, lonelier, and, and more cut off from each other than at any other time in human history. We, we, we're becoming a synthesized society in a great big hurry to get to the next. I feel like this movie is not very dated. No. Um, no. For a movie with lots of technology in it. But none of the computers really stood out to me in the way that old movie computers do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where it's just like so clearly like, here's a spinning email. Like how the Independence <laughs> oh, actually, Day alien used like-, like a DOS system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but actually, that is in this movie where she gets an email and it's like email the little. Um, yeah, warp is, like, but spinning. it's like a creepy email, so it works. I know. I feel like <laughs> what stood out to me this time was like when you see John Hurt's character. I was like, oh, it's Bezos. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, it's Elon oh, yeah. Musk. How like, like pr- how prescient this feels? Like billionaires like going up into space, yep. funding space travel. Like I don't think it was a thing in the nineties. Look closer. First rule in government spending. Why build one when you can have two twice the price? Only this one can be kept secret. Controlled by Americans. Built by the Japanese subcontractors. Who also happen to be recently acquired wholly owned subsidiaries of Hadden Industries. They still want an American to go, Doctor. Want to take a ride? 
And also there's an explicit argument in this movie among people in positions of power in the government talking about, like, should we put public money toward general scientific research or toward practical research that'll have, like, immediate applications for consumer products? Like, that's what, like, Tom Skerritt is, like, Ellie's boss and ends up fucking her over in other ways later. But earlier on, that's, like, literally a thing that he's grappling with is... Like, is it a good thing to spend public money on just, like, general scientific research or general space research, even though you don't have a guaranteed end result of where it'll go? And it's like, that's the kind of question that our political system has absolutely not adequately answered. Clearly not, because now Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are literally the private citizens spending more money on space research than our government is. And yeah, it's it's fascinating to see it in a movie it's even more impressive that it's actually done in a dramatic way that like is connected to the characters in the movie and isn't just like weird backstory tom scarrett is so punchable in this movie <laughs> He's the most punchable man i wrote down fuck you tom scarrett and fuck you james woods mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah james because tom scarrett dies and then james woods becomes the punchable character he's already the yeah punchable. Well, but and I didn't, he's punchable in real life i didn't too. like how over the top james woods was at the end Hmm. i mean again it's he's literally it's like he's playing 2021 james woods in this movie yeah that's just also very like because genuinely like his tweets are that over the top this movie is so out of the time it even knew what an asshole james woods would be seriously (laughs) yeah again god bless angela bassett for being there to to give ellie her power back fucking angela bassett angela bassett is the character from the net i think we have to explain No, that's Angela that's Bennett. Angela oh, Bennett. Are oh, Angela Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> but if it was the character from the net who was also, I mean, that I would just die and I go know to heaven. Angela Bassett was, but I thought you said Bennett, but I think I said Bassett. I'm just so confused. It's Bassett. It's Bennett. It's Bassett. It's Bennett. <laughs> I am Angela Bassett. <laughs> Guys, check out our episode on the nut. Ma'am, you are not a black actress. (laughs) You are a computer programmer from Santa Monica. If Tom Skerritt ever tells you to get on a spaceship, do not do it. Don't do it. That's the lesson from movies. Don't do it. Alien. He was an alien. Oh, that's right. Okay. As was John Hurt. So, like, no spaceships with these guys. (laughs) No. One thing that came through to me that I particularly loved being able to see that's wrapped into the story of this is the scientific method. (laughs) Like, literally, the procedural elements of this movie where they are methodically discovering, you know, the first kind of hint of the alien signal, and then they start unpacking it and interpreting and decoding the different parts of the signal that Ellie discovers. And it starts with just discovering the first frequency. And it's that kind of, you know, like whooshing sound, but then also like audio and then audio and video and the way that they just go step by step, really using scientific investigatory methods to not only try to verify what it is they think they found, but also to like try to prove themselves wrong, reaching out to other scientists around the world to try to help prove themselves wrong, I thought was really just fascinating and well done and well integrated into the story. And it's just something that basically never gets shown in movies, even in movies about scientist characters. I'm discovering I really like teams of scientists in movies. Me too! Jurassic Park, Twister. Hell yeah. 
which I think both do a better job by far than most scientist movies, which kind of barely pass muster. But this one even goes beyond those, I think, to feel very real. I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about no, in five I don't minutes, know. <laughs> and I am riveted. <laughs> Like, I'm like, give me more. And I I feel like I could watch them, like, argue about funding for hours. <laughs> and I still gives- feel really dumb watching this movie so in some parts. I'm like, oh, I get, I thought, I hope what they're talking about is true. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Talk to me, guys. Partially polarized set of moving pulses, amplitude modulated. We're locked. Systems check out, signal across the board. What's the frequency? 4.4623 gigahertz. Hydrogen times pi. Told you. Strong sucker, too. I got it! I got it! I got it! I'm patched in! Alright, let me hear it. See that? Make me a liar, fish. It uh, could be AWACS out of Kirtland jamming us, but I'm doubting it. Alright, let's see if Fud's reading it, too. And one aspect of it that I love so much is that it's not ultimately an individual effort. It really isn't ultimately just one person who saves the day. It's not just one person who makes the breakthrough. It's a lot of people together over a long period of time, and they all fuck it up at one point or another, and they learn better and calibrate their instruments differently. Like, it's so the complete opposite of the ethos of all the rest of these other movies, and basically 99% of all sci-fi movies I've ever seen. Um, And I've seen a lot of sci-fi movies. Um... And I think a lot of this does go back to Carl Sagan and who Carl Sagan was. I'm going to mention Titanic. (laughs) The boat sank. Get over it. (laughs) The sound in this movie is so cool. The sound design in this movie is incredible. It lost the Oscar to Titanic, and I'm mad. Mm. Even though I love Titanic, but I'm like, like, I mean, the sound was great in Titanic, too. I'm not Mm. really mad about that, but like... The sound is such an important part of this movie that, like, it the movie doesn't work if that sound isn't cool. Like, yes. none of that whole that scene is like probably ten or fifteen minutes of the hearing <laughs> that sound <laughs> and bringing in various people. You need that to be like working, and it does. And not only that, but like you know the the wormhole sequence in the end also like sounds great. But I'm just like, does the movie need more Oscars? At least one. It came out the same year as Titanic. Yeah, bad luck. I think it's so interesting that Hitler is the first image, and that is such an ominous yeah. moment. Oh, when it's, like, zeroed in on the swastika. swastika. It's also, like, so prescient for, like, what is going on now. Like, this is such a relevant movie still. Because really when that is. happened, 
I was like, oh, I bet people today watching the movie, like, they would be like, oh, it's Hitler. But the movie uses that and being like, yeah, neo-Nazis that are like, yeah, this is a sign, Mm -hmm. white supremacy. Um, And I was like, yeah, that would happen in real life. And again, it's like, it's an image that has so much weight in and of itself. But then when they add the detail of like, oh, well, this was like one of the first satellite transmissions that was ever powerful enough to be able to escape Earth's atmosphere. It's like, oh, holy shit. (laughs) No, that actually makes perfect sense and is horrifying yeah like we interpret it as hostile because it sounds like a threat coming to us but it's like wait no we put that out there like this was humanity they are just reflecting back what we put Mm, out there and it doesn't matter like they would have reflected back anything but one of the first things we put out there was this awful fucking monster this was humanity's first beacon into space was so again it just had so much weight for me The last thing I I just wanted to talk about, how much I fucking love Carl Sagan and how glad I am that he existed and that he was the person that he was. He was an eternal skeptic, but he was never cynical. And I think that his kind of ability to retain awe at the universe and his ability and his desire to convey that to people is really contagious. And I don't think there are many other scientists who've ever, you know, tried to do that and branched out like into writing fiction themselves. But I just think there's so much strength and there's so much thematic weight in all of the things that that he wrote about in his original story. And like, I am so glad that Carl Sagan saw through the bullshit of America's theocratic right wing, because this movie just completely skewers that. And he spent his whole life like sharing the love for science uh, that he felt and the awe that it inspired in him. And I think kind of contrary to what America's theocratic right wing thinks and what they're trying to convince us of politically, the kind of science and curiosity that this movie illustrates isn't incompatible with spiritual faith or any kind of religious faith really at all, unless your spiritual faith is that science is a lie and that dinosaur fossils are a test of our faith or something. And I do think, especially rewatching it this time, like understanding a lot more of what Matthew McConaughey's character was actually talking about, and understanding a lot more the emotional journey that Ellie's character goes through. I really do think this movie grapples with science and faith in a way that almost no other movies even attempt to do. Yeah, I think it really honors both, interestingly, and I agree with you. Like, Carl Sagan's curiosity and science is really what comes through here, and I think it's so well married to Robert Zemeckis's, like, what can feel, like, overly saccharine in some scripts here, because, like, Carl Sagan's a little bit dry and doesn't, like, the book, I mean, it tells an emotional story, but it doesn't pull those heartstrings, like, the way that Zemeckis can, and it's just one of those Fincher- and Aaron Sorkin for The Social Network, one of those matches that, like, they're very, very different, but somehow they produce this perfect thing. And I also, today, was just really seizing on the faith versus science thing. Jake Busey's character, the the long, blonde-haired creep who blows up the, the first spaceship, has always haunted me. I think he's the creepiest actor. He's in really the, the Frighteners all, as all, well. All the Buseys. When you get a Busey <laughs> in your movie, you got trouble. Yeah. Any old Busey. <laughs> It's not a good sign. It's a fairly like small portion of this movie, but there is like there's we see like kind of the big reaction as Ellie is coming into the space station, and it's religious fanatics, neo Nazis, um, some women dancing to. I love that Spirit shot. In the sky. It's just like I was like, cool. This is what when you do Back to the Future and Roger Rabbit, like you get this many extras in mm-hmm. your movie. You know, like 
when you when you are a hit maker, you get final cut and you get this this many extras for scenes like this. And they're holding a sign that says "Science is not our god," and I was just like, "This is fucking familiar." Like from the past year of just all this anti-science stuff that, like, obviously it was there in the '90s because this is something that came out. But at least I wasn't aware of it, you know, as a teenager. But I just don't think it was also as big as it has been in the past couple of years. And just, like, this whole movie, when Eleanor is not chosen, it's, like, the country chooses God over science. Like, she's the science, and she says she doesn't believe in God. And the country, represented kind of by the selection committee, is, like, we need someone who believes in God. And that just really hit me this time. Also, there's a lot of suspense in this movie for a movie that doesn't actually have very much of a threat. And the only threat in this movie (laughs) is human. It's people, like, the religious fanatic blowing up the thing. Right. Even, like, when, like, the last sequence where she's, you know, in the chair and, like, we're worried about her. It's, like, it's because man built that and didn't follow the alien instructions. And I also connected this time that, like, when she's a child and we see her on the radio reaching out to her dad, that is her being a faithful person. She's believing that her dad could still be out there and he doesn't answer. And that's what causes her to like turn to science instead Mm. and so yeah i just thought that was so interesting the way that this movie equates those two things and that basically what i came away from the movie this time was saying is like belief in science and belief in god are the same thing it's belief that there is something kind of intangible and mysterious out there that we can't quite grasp it doesn't matter what it is that you believe in but it's that you believe that there's some kind of meaning and like bigger purpose whether that's from divine on high or if that's just like kind of a natural evolution that you believe in and like a curiosity is that like no matter what like the it's the fact that you believe in something that matters and that resonated so much with me this time and it seemed so smart and like just like to me like was like okay well we solved the debate of like science (laughs) versus god like if everyone could just believe in this that would be fine what happens now now you go home home but i have so many questions do we get to come back this was just the first step in time you'll take another then other people need to see what i've seen they need to see this is the way it's been done for billions of years small moves on I take away the same conclusion about like this movie does more to kind of help resolve and coalesce what seems like an intractable debate than really any other movie I've ever seen. I don't think the movie places science on the same level as religious faith because the science aspect of it is always pursuing and never being satisfied with like answering something by faith, by having to hold faith in an answer. But I also think that that's one way in which Matthew McConaughey's character is differentiated from the other religious people in the movie because his spirituality is one of that pursuit and one of that kind of restlessness with not accepting dogma as the answer to anything ever, no matter who it's coming from. That's not a kind of story thread that I I could have perceived as a kid, but now it's it's crystal clear, and I think it's not only like beautifully kind of rendered, but I think it's just dramatically done very, very well in a way that I think sets it apart from most other Robert Zemeckis movies I've seen, but most other of any kind of movies I've ever seen. 
it really struck me how much a, this is a Joan of Arc story um, this time. It was just like That's a really woman who has had an experience and then they don't believe her and there's an, like an inquisition. Mm. Yeah, like that was such a classic story. There's just something about like female-driven sci-fi that I think works so well. Like I, all my favorite sci-fi films, mm. or at least most of them, have women at the center. And it's like, it's like this, Alien, Gravity, Arrival annihilation it's just i don't know somehow those things work really well together and i think this is one of the very best examples of it yeah honestly I, i'm really excited to rewatch this movie more and more like and i feel like at at further stages in my life when i have you know different experiences and being on the other end of different experiences that i haven't had yet um i feel like i'll connect to this movie even more deeply how would you rank these four movies <laughs> Well, Contact is obviously the worst. (laughs) I think I would contact Independence Day, Men in Black, Mars Attacks. But it was hard between Men in Black and Independence Day because it's Men in Black might be better for what it is, but I just like the kind of movie that Independence Day is more and like it sticks with me more. Like the parts that it does well, I would rather watch that than like Men in Black, I guess. Contact, Men in Black, Independence Day, Mars Attacks. I really didn't like Mars Attacks. I really never want to watch it again. Yeah, for me, it's Contact, Men in Black, Mars Attacks, Independence Day. Hmm. Well, we all all like Contact. (laughs) We all like Contact, honestly. We're in full contact with this movie. And that's all the contact we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode, we'll be talking about My Girl. My Girl. My Girl, the 1991 coming-of-age drama starring Macaulay Culkin, Anna Klumski, and Jamie Lee Curtis. So be on the lookout for that episode next month. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your fine podcast products. And rate and review us five stars or more on Apple Podcasts so more people will see the show. You can also contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can make more episodes. I've been Seth. I'm Chris. And I'm okay to go! I'm okay to go! <laughs> I don't know that you are. <laughs> I couldn't really. I'm okay. I can't really do that. <laughs> Quick, Chris, let's shake Becky. To get out the wild, 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 wild west. When I roll into the wild west. When I stroll into the wild west. When I bounce into the wild west. We go west. We go west. We go west. We go Trying to draw, thinking you're bad And he drawing on West Best with a pen and a pad Don't even think about it Six gun weighing a ton Ten faces and turn just for fun Sun up to sundown Rolling around See where the bad guys ought to be found And make them lay down The defenders of the West Crushing on pretenders in the West Don't mess with us Cause we are not
That's what I call a close encounter. <laughs> 